Okay, welcome to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolou. And we've got a great guest today. Scott Bludorn is... A native son of the East End. Yes, he is. It's going to be great to have him on. I, you know, we were talking a little bit about the sock, about the whole idea. Scott makes his living as an artist. And he's a young man compared to us old farts. And, you know, I was thinking about it because both of us grew up in the, the arts, basically. You more in film and TV and me in the kind of Broadway and film. And there was a real stigma uh, when we were coming up about making money doing art. Do you know what I mean? It, it was this kind of this dichotomy that all of our parents were very supportive, you and me, Sock, you know, and about like going into the arts. But, right. But don't get too don't get too successful. Well, here's what I would say though: is like every parent, when they have like a five year old or a ten year old, uh, is so proud of their kid's art, their macaroni necklaces and their like first poems, and they're like, oh, they're so artistic, they get it. No parent wants their kid to be an artist at 30. <laughs> you know? But you are, you are the father of an artist. Maya is I'm a father of two artists, and, and, and I'm an artist. And I'll just tell you that like, when you're coming up, you're probably blessed with the ignorance that you don't realize how hard. It's like the bumblebee that doesn't know it's supposed, not supposed to be able to fly. Right. So I think that's a huge thing. I, I certainly, And I also know when, when you are coming up, uh, the 20s were really, really the most tricky decade for me emotionally, uh, where uh, confronted with with life and where I was going to put my energy and how I was going to pay my bills and how I was going to hopefully achieve a body of work or begin to achieve a body of work. Um, I was also confronted with the first of the month with rent uh, being uh, due with all of my so-called friends and associates that I had come up with who had done more traditional routes starting to get like some success, starting to get like raises and expense accounts and credit cards and all that stuff. And um, it's a kind of a zero sum game. Uh, I think when you, when you're a young artist um, and, and even, even now for me um, where uh, either you're, you're happy, it's like an opera, either you're happy because you're working and you love your work and you love your purpose or you're completely like in the bowels. But you have one of those amazing stories, Sock. How much money did you have when Toy Story, when you got the job for Toy Story? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well so, 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 yeah, so I go out to L.A. and I begin my writing career. And uh, I have seven years of massive failure, like comical failure. Uh, just enough nibbles to not quit. And uh, along the way with, with my then writing partner, Joel Cohen, you know, we got the opportunity to write Toy Story. I won't bore everybody with how and the what's or why's. But six months before Toy Story comes out, my, my wife at the time is pregnant with a child, unfortunately, that uh, never uh, survived. But um, we, we had $11 in the bank. We couldn't have money to eat for a weekend. And we had to go and hawk stuff to like just get through to Monday. Yeah. Now, a year later, Toy Story's out. I'm an Academy Award nominee. Um, I got people falling over themselves to give me opportunity uh, that I would have died for uh, a year prior. And and yeah, and that I did have a very unique experience. Yeah. And I will tell you, for me, it took me almost a decade after that to not think that somebody was going to pull the rug out from under me. And, and uh, I don't know what it says, but here I am in my late 50s. I'll be 58 tomorrow uh, from when we when this airs. I, I, uh, I'm still in that kind of existential crisis uh, in my own head. Gosh, so. You know what? You're saying you're going to be 58, and that brings me back. And I know, like... We don't have the greatest memories now, but I i mean, in terms of memory, not memories. And I remember making you a cake for your 18th birthday in the shape of a cowboy hat. And it said the lone pip on it. Yeah, I wanted to be a pip when I was younger, like Gladys Knight and the Pips, Midnight Train to Georgia, the whole thing. I know you did. I love soul music, uh, still do, but absolutely. Anyway, well, we're going to bring on Scott Bluedorn after the break. Scott is is a working artist you can go to his website scottbluedorn.com and he works in paint he paints i never know the proper 
thing to say. He paints, he draws. I own a few Scott Blue Dorns, I must say. I'm I love them. And his work is is kind of incredibly surreal. I mean, it really is kind of somewhere like Magritte. It's um you know, shingled whales that float above the water and and lighthouses. Yeah, that, I would uh, say like Boniger Magritte. Boniger Magritte. That's, you know what, that's going to be his nickname from now on, whenever I see him. Bonnet the Greek. But, yeah, uh, no, there's a lot of whales, a lot of shingles, a lot of things that, that you associate visually with the East End or with the mythology of the East End or with the history of the East End. The mythology. Like he has kind of, he has kind of uh, taken it and uh, uh, as, as images, as actual physical images, and reinvented them and repurposed them uh, to create an entirely new emotional experience. So really an amazing, amazing artist. Yeah. And I'm excited to hear about his journey because... You're born out here. I know he went into the city for a while, and then he felt that tug and that pull to come back home. And, and not only that, but to celebrate the East End. Like we we know lots of artists who are out here because of the light or because of you know circumstance, but his art actually celebrates the place where he is, the East End. So we're going to take a, a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking with Scott Bluedorn. Bonnick Magritte, and uh, you're listening to Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And we're coming to you on WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. You can also stream us online at WLIWFM.org. 88.3 on the dial, number one in your hearts. <laughs> All right, and we'll be right back. Serving Eastern Long Island and Coastal Connecticut, this is 88.3 WLIW-FM and WLIW.org slash radio in Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Your source for news, music, and entertainment, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. From shore and then under our eight wheel bore, the captain called all hands and swore he'd take that wheel and tow. Okay, we're back. Sundays on the East End, Bridget Leroy and Alex Sokolo. And welcome, Scott Bluedorn. Hi, everyone. <laughs> hey, Scott, how are you today, man? I'm, I'm doing well. And uh, yeah, thank you. I'm just sitting in my very sunny. Uh, well, a temporary studio at the moment, just thankful for everything, really. Yeah. I don't want to go too linear, but I'm curious. I mean, you know, all kids are artists. All children have a, an innate sense of art. When did you know or when did you tell people <laughs> that you knew that this was what you wanted to pursue? I think I have been drawing since I could hold a drawing instrument. Um, and I think like all kids who are natural artists, like that's... I think that's just the uh, default mode of the of, of being a human is you are an unbridled creative person as a small person, and you know I guess many people tend to lose that, but some people kind of keep a certain um, germ of that energy, and uh, I think I've always known that I wanted to be an artist in some way. Um, I remember telling people that. I think I wanted to be a, um, an inventor first. What did you want to invent? What do I want to invent? So in kindergarten, I think it was kindergarten, maybe first grade, I, I was starting to draw floating cars, um, which were not spaceships, because I knew that they were cars that they served like a utilitarian purpose. And, and, what did, and, and like you still do floating whales, you still do floating objects. What did floating kind of mean to you? Maybe you didn't know back then, but what? Yeah. Have you yeah, there, well, I mean, there could be a connection. Um, yes, yeah, certainly like floating things in my work are still, yeah, very like prevalent. Um, I think it ties into uh, a, uh, an idea of magical thinking or magical realism. Levitation is, I think, something that uh, <laughs> most people wish that they could do. Like flying is a pretty common wish. I, mean, I don't know if it's necessarily been all, always one of mine, but I've always thought of the universe as this like fluid place where things could happen in different ways. And that's what my art is kind of about. And also it mixes in science and um, even engineering and technology, which 
are in themselves a form of magic. But um, okay, so, so you have a floating car as, as, as you're six or seven and you're like, you're into floating cars. Yeah. Yeah. So where did it, where did you go from inventor to artist? Um, well, I think just drawing over and over again and uh, being aware of what I wanted to do um, and how I wanted to do it. I think, you know, looking at illustrated books as a kid was, it was like a huge uh, inspiration for me. Like the, um, well, the busy world of uh, Richard Scarry, which is a very busy world filled with animals and machines. And I think I wanted to do that. Oh yeah, lowly worm. I remember there's pictures of me holding a book that was as big as I was maybe when I was like three or, or four, just like a, most kids would have a teddy bear. I had this giant illustrated book. <laughs> So that could have been something. And and and, and as you're coming up, uh, you're East Hampton uh, native. You, you went to East Hampton High School, I yeah. assume. And uh, was there good support there for your for your passion or for your desires? Yeah, definitely. I I had really great art teachers all the way through. Well, really, John Marshall, which is the elementary school, middle school, high school. Great supportive teachers who I think. We're also really interested in what they were doing as a teacher. I think, yeah, you know, and they were all artists in themselves. Sometimes you, you get a teacher who might not be a practicing artist, but I think all of mine actually were and are. Was Mary Ansack there when you were there? Yep, in middle school, yep. Um, my first teacher in elementary school was um, was Andrea Thayer. And mm -hmm. um, oh, was I remember- Oh, Linda Bisbardi part of that as well? I'm trying to think of who was art teaching art back then. Uh, in, in elementary school? Uh, just like uh, any of the school system, I'm thinking of- Yeah, mid well, middle school, I also had uh, Heather Evans, who then moved to the high school. Um, and yeah, absolutely. And at home, uh, would you say your your home was an artistic home? Yeah, certainly. Um, both of my parents were not artists themselves, but really encouraged the arts, I think, in a lot of different ways. I know my dad was a really great draftsperson, drawer, but didn't really show it a lot. But he had kind of this architectural handwriting. And my family, um, there's a lot of architects in my family, so and engineers. So uh, maybe genetically, I came from some kind of a background. That's so interesting because, like, what your your kind of combination of art, like you were saying, is engineering and art. You kind of combine, yeah. um, you know, organic forms like whales or turtles with buildings like lighthouses yeah. or the Moran house. Um, yeah. And and so that is this kind of wonderful blend of the two. So, okay, mm -hmm. so then what happens? So you, you're out of school and you wanna, you wanna be an artist, um, <laughs> you are an artist. Well, I, what I would say is, is, is from what I've read a little bit about you, you, you had a chapter in New York City, so you were drawn into the city. How did that impact yeah. your, your artistry? Well, I'll just um, rewind a little bit. And so late in late high school, I was very into photography, black and white photography. And my teacher was Bruce, Bruce Lieberman, fantastic painter and photographer. He was teaching his photography class like a 2D art class. Uh, it was a 2D uh, art college level course for high school kids. So, and I thought I was going to go to school for photography at that point because I was just really, and actually my dad was also a photographer for some time. So that kind of pushed me in that direction, even though I was always drawing. I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I can combine the two at some point, but I actually hadn't thought of myself as a fine art artist. Um, I thought I'd go into a creative kind of trade, uh, either photography or, or illustration at that time is what I was thinking, which I ended up later going into. Um, so, right, I actually went to Savannah College of Art and Design for, for two years um, and was studying illustration. And then I transferred to the School of Visual Arts in, in New York. And that's kind of where I took, started to take things a little bit more, well, I wouldn't say more seriously. I just became more focused, I think, on really just drawing, creating my own worlds, and then bending that to whatever it was that I was learning. Like, um, uh, well, I was studying, you know, commercial illustration. And um, it appealed to me in a certain way, and but it never grasped totally a hold of me where I thought oh, I'm going to work in like advertising or work in a related field because illustration was really changing. Yeah. Yeah. Illustration changed a lot, even from the time that I start, went to, started to go to school to even, you know, to when I graduated um, freelance 
illustration is was always kind of it was a big kind of business i think more so in the 70s 80s early 90s and then digital art took over and explosion of photography and stock art and that kind of stuff right. And, and, and I can say, like, as, as, a, as a writer, as a young writer, it took me forever to say I am a writer. I would say I am trying to be a writer. I want to be a writer. Um, what I did know, though, is I was drawn to movies, and I, I knew that, in a way, it was a bit of a cash crop, where if I got out to Los Angeles, uh, that there were a lot of opportunities for me. When you're a visual artist, like, how did you, and I know it's a little crass, but, like, how did you start looking at monetizing it? How did you start looking at, like, it's not just what I'm doing that people appreciate, but how do I actually turn this mm -hmm. into a life, uh, okay, a career? Um, well, I do remember uh, my selling my first piece of work in an art show, which very distinctively, it was the um, Guild Hall's uh, clothesline art sale, which is, like, a classic. And yeah. it's so cool because it breaks down all the barriers of a juried art show or there's no gatekeepers there to say, oh, you can show, you can't show this or there's no curators. It's like a giant thing where everyone who wants to submit art can submit art. What was the piece? What, what was? It was a little, it was a little still life of, uh, of bananas. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very simple little painting. Aww. But uh, I remember um, coming back and they said, oh, you're, you're this piece sold. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. I might have sold another one, too, but I don't remember at that time. But I was like, OK, well, I like painting and I like drawing and I want to do this. And if I can make money as an illustrator taking assignments, then I think this could work. But there is a big gap between that first realization and then actually becoming a full-time artist, which included many years of odd jobs and uh, art installing, uh, art handling, which is, oh, <laughs> it's funny how it's been looked at as something that, I mean, a lot of artists do it as kind of a side hustle or some of them obviously are also very, I mean, that's not to belittle it. It's a very professional job and you need to. Yeah, please don't belittle I'm it. I'm not belittling at all. I mean, I have every, <laughs> no, that's, that's what my husband does for a living. Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. It's, <laughs> No, it's something that I still do, right? Like it's actually, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually a very involved job. That's what, what you said that I totally uh, identify with is I, I think when, when for me, when pursuing a career in the arts, I had to look at it as my full-time hobby until I made that leap. And when you make that leap, that's a really frightening leap when you realize I have to now pay my bills with this. I like, mm -hmm. I can't have bad days. I can't, I have to be almost, I, I used to look at myself as a, as a factory where I'm both the foreman in the marketing department, but also I'm on the floor working. And the pressures that I know I felt uh, internally were, were huge to, to get comfortable with that anxiety. How was that like for you when you talk about that period? Well, it was a very long trans transition period where taking the leap into saying, okay, I'm just going to do my own art or I'm going to ex accept, you know, various assignments at times. The transition came where when it just became busy enough to do that, where I would ask, um, was asked to do commissions and uh, various assignments or, um, you know, jobs for designing something like a logo or. And I'm curious, or, Scott, but at, at that point, had you kind of developed your own style were people coming to you because of that or were you just kind of part of a a, a factory as, as alex said <laughs> yeah um well i couldn't i wouldn't say i even necessarily even have a style now <laughs> and i say that because the floating cars is kind of there yeah so i have a distinctive look that i think right that might people might like identify my work for and and i'm glad for that but I must say, like, I struggle to find identity even in my own art sometimes because I take so many detours. And a lot of people don't know that I have all these alternative practices where I'm, A, drawing and painting are kind of like my, you know, meat and potatoes. But they're, I am always experimenting with printmaking. I make furniture, found object assemblage, like a lot of different things that are outside of that realm but relate to I mean, because it's really, it's a holistic art practice. Um, so in, in a way, sometimes I look at that stuff as what I'm doing yeah. to, to have fun and experiment, but I'm drawing mostly as my, um, that's what I do mainly. And that's what people kind of know me for. So 
um, yeah, at one point I just got busy enough where, uh, nothing else made sense, but to keep doing what I was doing. So, and a lot of that I attribute to a, like working hard. I've worked, you know, a lot and I draw a lot. I also work really quickly, which I think is fortunate. A lot of people sometimes just don't have the ability to, to create enough output to get them to a certain place. Um, but then, so, so what can you describe uh, what a, a, a typical day of uh, work feels like for you and how you uh, time management? Mostly by uh, having a main project that I'm working towards, which might either be um, a, a drawing or a painting, but sometimes I'll have satellite work where it's something that I can branch off and do this for a little bit and come back to it. And I think that's super important and, and healthy for for artists and people in general, if you always have something a little bit uh, that you can dip into to get yourself out of a certain frame of mind. Um, my typical day is like, I'm at any given time, I'm working on like three or four different projects. Um, and not all of them are even art related because I, I do also do, I'm on a lot of committees and a lot of um, organizations uh, spe spe specifically because I'm in, very interested in well, environmental protection, conservation, renewable energy, transitioning our entire way of life out of, um, <laughs> I don't know, what you could call the nightmare of the 20th, 20th and 21st century well, now. There's a lot, of, a lot of things that I think culturally need to change that I'm like to help. Well, that's, to I, I definitely want to touch on that um, after we take a little break because um, your art is your soul. I mean, I, I've known you a long time and I, I think I can really say that you are an extremely authentic person <laughs> because your actions in the community represent a, the same channel as your art. You, you have these marine creatures that you immortalize in kind of these weird, fantastic, surreal uh, paintings and drawings, but then you also work really hard to, to make a difference in your community on the environmental stuff. And I also want to hear about your time at the Isle of Shoals, because I know we had talked about that a while ago. And, 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 oh, yeah. and we got to talk about the duck line and who defaced it. And, and about the beer bottles. So we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Sundays on the East End with Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. And our guest, Scott Bluedorn. And we're going to be right back after this. Hi, it's Joe Shaw and Bill Sutton. We're going to be co-hosting a show called Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. And Bill, we're going to get a lot of help. We are. We're going to hear from editors and reporters and various news people from our own Express News Group, the Suffolk Times, the Riverhead News Review, the Shelter Island Reporter, the East Hampton Star, Newsday, the East End Beacon, Riverhead Local, and WLIWFM. Which is where you'll hear it at 10 a.m. Saturday, 10 a.m. Sunday, and 1 a.m. Sunday. Sundays on the East End. This is Bridget Leroy. And Alex Sokolow. Who is juggling oranges. And we're here with our guest artist, Scott Bluedorn, a local myth and legend. Maker, maker <laughs> and uh, in his own skin. What is the design you did? Which brewery is it for? Um, Greenport Harbor Brewing Company. Greenport Harbor. And what is the design? What is the drawing on the bottle? I um, so I've done, I think, 10 maybe 11 uh, different designs now for labels. What was the first, the first one where you were like, oh my God, like everyone's gonna see this. <laughs> yeah, the first one was, um, was actually taken directly from a drawing that I had done, which is the, the floating shingled house whale, which has become a very distinctive piece of mine. And um, I love that. so, yeah, no, and they started actually with that one and then three other ones, uh, which was an initial release for four different of their beers. And then, yeah, I saw it in, in a supermarket, you know, behind the, the glass. And oh, that must have been so cool, man. That was a really cool feeling, definitely. I never, I hadn't done any kind of products, uh, you know, illustration or design before. 
and, and, and nowhere near to that scale. So that was really, that's so cool. That fun. is, that's really awesome. So at what point were you looking at like a whale or the Mulford barn or the Moran house and, and said, yeah, you know, I really think that this needs fins <laughs> or like <laughs> a little sucky mouth or whatever, or shell. Yeah. Well, okay. So it actually comes from a very kind of simple idea where I was looking at these colonial barns, houses, structures, and especially Mulford Farm, which if anyone knows it is East, in East Hampton Village, it's a very old farm and the barn itself, I think dates back to late 1600s. But if you look at it on its side profile or its elevation, its architects would call it, it actually takes this kind of whale-like form because they're like these big spaces that have like these uh, kind of flat angles. And uh, to me, uh, I was like, um, uh, it, it'd be interesting to see that in this more biomorphic form and then added bonus, like we have this whaling history. So it really takes all these different elements and kind of sews them together into, well, it's, it's a, a vision of, it's a surreal vision, but it's also relates to a real history. So yeah, I think it was successful in that way. And you just, you just turned your gaze 180 degrees and did the Moran's turtle. Yeah, yeah, and, and that one is, uh, yeah, again, looking at, there's a really crazy architecture of this house that, again, I, I encourage anyone, if you don't know about the Moran house, it's a fairly new museum, but it's, it's this house that was the home of Thomas Moran, who was essentially one of the first major artists to come and settle on the East End and really uh, make the place an artist colony. And, and when, when was this? Sorry? When was uh, this? Okay, this is like... Um, 1870s, 1880s, I think he first came out here. Mary Nimmo. And his wife, right. His wife. Yeah, Mary Nimmo Moran. Who, uh, and she was an amazing printmaker, and they were both printmakers, just amazing outright artists in, in their own way. Um, yeah, and again, they, they, uh, they, he was famous in his own time for his just like some of the best painting I think ever created, honestly. Uh, he, and mm -hmm. he was responsible for getting the national parks, kind of sowing the 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 seed for the creation of national parks as he was showing this majestic beauty of when he went out west and he was painting just like glorious, like his sense of light was just kind of unparalleled. So he was known in yeah. his time, came out to East Hampton, built this amazing, crazy looking house, which I think is in the arts and crafts style. It's, uh, it's a very distinctive house. And I really wanted to overdraw it's it. It's a little like the Bates Motel. Yeah. It's kind of got that gothic, like the yeah. turrets and it's all Edwardian that. Edwardian for sure. And yeah, and gothic kind of elements. And it's just a cool looking house. It's right by Town Pond, actually. Um, and it is a museum you can now visit. So, and I just always wanted to draw it. And the other cool thing about it is that it was covered in ivy and weeds for like 50 years or something. So people hadn't, they had forgotten about it. So, right, uh, right. They sort of had to like remove yeah. all of that so they could get down to the, the kind of yeah. beauty underneath of the architecture. Yeah. So, so I mean, so you've combined all of this art and made it kind of a love letter to, to Bonnick, mm -hmm. to, to East Hampton and the area you're mm -hmm. from. Yeah, I, I really do. I hadn't been really interested in history until I came back, you know, from, from art school and from, I lived in Brooklyn for a number of years. And, and, and what, what motivated you uh, coming back east? Well, uh, a number of things. Um, one was uh, not being totally fed up with Brooklyn and the city, but wanting to relocate back to roots and get back to nature, which as corny as it sounds, just I, I grew up by the beach and not having like daily access to the ocean is that, that was something that was really kind of egging me to get back. I lived in Brooklyn and I would take my I would get my surfboard and go out on the A train out to Rockaway to go surfing. And like, but once a month or, you know, like it just wasn't really cutting it. Um, yeah. And, and the Gowanus Canal wasn't doing it for you? Yeah. The Gowanus <laughs> Canal. Surfing in the Superfund site. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I noticed that you have a piece that actually, I would think if there was a piece that summed you up, it's the fish that's holding it's a fish with legs holding a surfboard. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I was like, oh, that's Scott Bluedorn right yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, surfing's definitely a big part of my life too. It's not so like, uh, it's not so forward in my art, but um, no, I, I love the ocean and it's, yeah, I grew up by the ocean. I started building sandcastles at a very young age, which is funny because it also relates to architecture in a way. 
And I never wanted to be an architect, but it's like all kind of comes through in some way in my work. And now the ocean really is just constant, really my source of main source of inspiration, how it has shaped uh, societies, including our own um, local culture. So, but you know, ocean, bay, uh, fishing, um, the culture surrounding it, uh, it creates trade, it creates, I mean, the East End wouldn't really exist without uh, the ocean-going tradition. So. Well, you know, you have a piece that I think kind of sums it up. I, I don't know what it's called, but it's the shell. It's like a conch shell. And then you can see yeah. on the inside that it has a city growing out of it. Of all your works, it seems the most like Escher-like, maybe. And, and, and maybe we could also segue a little bit here to your, your activism and your, your community uh, efforts. Yeah. Um, about uh, sustainability and the environment and, and trying to uh, reframe culture. Maybe it exists as an extension of your art, but, but can you talk a little bit about how you got involved uh, and, and why you get involved and, and what you think is, is possible? Well, first and foremost is the idea that where we live in particular is such a pre precious place. Um, I think growing up here, I wasn't quite aware of just how special it was and state of preservation and all the work that, I wasn't aware of the work that went into that being the case because you look at the rest of Long Island, you know, you look at New York City and you realize what the built environment has done, you know, in very obvious ways, what it's done to the environment, but also what it's done to human, you know, society. And I see the modern world as maybe a, I guess, an evolution of, of technology and, and building practices and but constantly expanding. And um, I think the East End is really important as a place because it kind of halted a lot of that development. And it is this, you know, I wouldn't, I, I can't say the word pristine because it's been built, but it, it still resembles its, uh, its natural environment in a lot of ways. So to me, that's just always been the most important thing that we don't lose sight of uh, the natural world and the way that we're connected to it. Naturally, I became involved in activism through a lot of different channels, mostly through knowing that, that climate change um, is just this massive problem that needs to be dealt with on all these different levels. And um, I became involved. I started my own group called the East End Climate Action Network. In, it was 2014, which um, did a certain amount of advocating work for, uh, you know, getting environmental consciousness out there. And um, I joined the, the East Hampton Energy and Sustainability Committee. Uh, I've been on that for I think four years now. And, so, and, and what? And uh, tell me what their work is. Uh, like what? So we're in a, a government advisory body. So we advise the town board on all sorts of things that the town can and should do that anything that relates to energy and sustainability. And that includes a transition to renewable energy, electricity sources, which was declared in 2014. It was pledged by the town board that we would get 100% of our electricity from renewable sources by 2020, which unfortunately that goal wasn't met. Uh, for a lot of different reasons, but we're actually... And are we talking turbines? Are we talking solar? Yeah. What are we talking? Well, we're talking, yeah, it's all of the above. It's it's an overall transition to renewable energy, which includes solar, includes offshore wind power. It also, for to a large extent, also um, requires energy efficiency, which is this overlooked thing that... Combination. People are looking at these new technologies and they don't realize there's a lot we can do to just make the power that we have now just more efficient. That's another big part of it. So, and, that, and that is like it's insulation of homes and-, and uh, Insulation, yep. Power loss. Yeah. Um, all sorts of very easy kind of retrofits. And that's something that the town has been also doing is retrofitting older buildings and um, putting solar on rooftops, of course, but also making sure that insulation isn't is done in LED lighting. Um, there's just a lot of things that go into uh, carbon reduction as a goal. You know, but, but you know what, Scott? I mean, there's so many people who love the East End or appreciate the East End. They don't jump into the activism the way that you have. You're also on the East End and Arts Council. You've started art collaboratives on, on the East End. You, you've been so involved in the activism of, of forward motion, where did that 
come from? I mean, you, you have to just be filled with this fire to be able to do things like that. Yeah, well, well, thank you. I mean, I, I just see it not only as like a, a personal duty because I like to put my action where my mouth is. Um, yeah, I mean, I think just knowing that I want to be an organizer to a certain extent and that's what I like to do in my art and that's a very personal individual thing. Maybe part of it is actually... I mean, I'm alone most of the time. It's an artist's work. It's, I think any artist through history, it's going to be the same thing. Like you're often working in isolation unless you're working, you know, with a team, which I'm sure Alex knows all about. Yeah, but, but you know, it's funny. I, you know, two thoughts on that. One is, I think what I'm hearing, and I don't know if you would acknowledge this or not, or maybe yeah, I'm wrong, but your philosophy of architecture can be applied to how you frame your 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 art, frame your creativity, also naturally extends to the greater world where you see the world almost in architectural terms and understand that the activism that you can be part of is not really about pounding a chesser or raising a voice, but it's like saying, no, let's change the architecture of the world yeah. and then yeah. things will just kind of work more efficiently. To retro mm -hmm. retrofit the world so that it can function more smoothly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely. Uh, I am a big believer in design and, you know, the way that the world is designed really does influence how it works. So, yeah, I want to go, I want to go back to this other thing though, which is in, in, in writing for the entertainment industry, uh, feature writing and television writing are kind of like cattle farmers and sheep farmers. Like it's still farming, but it's a very different industry. And, um, I've never been able to thrive in the television model largely because I don't do my best creative alpha thinking and expressing in a social situation. Right. Mm. And, and television uh, writing requires the, the TV room, the table, everybody sits there. It's very <laughs> young. The Dick Van Dyke show. Yeah, it's very young. Morty Amsterdam and, and uh, Rosemary. And, yeah. like, and, and, and it's very kind of Jungian in the collectiveness of it. And I found... I was so I was such a social creature that I wanted to react to people mm -hmm. as opposed to have the time and the separation to say, well, what is it I'm trying to say? And and that's like, um, well, that's a, a blessing and a curse because then I spent a lot of time by myself. Right. Uh, and and when I have a great day's writing, somebody else might not know about it for years. Yeah. You know? Right. That's a really so, good point. Yeah. Oh, I, I think we all maybe struggle with that. That's like the inner life and the outer life and how you balance the two. It helps, it helps to have multiple personalities. <laughs> yeah. And I think everybody does as, as much as most people don't want to admit it. Right. It, I think it helps to have like, you know, like three or four voices going on in your head at all times. And, and you know, as long as you don't like hurt anybody, it's not, it's not that bad, you know? Listen, this is actually yeah. a really good segue to talk about Scott. You know that you've done quite a few like fellowships and um, at, at different places. And most recently, I remember talking to you about it before you went there. You did a residency, an artisan residence at the, at the Isle of Shoals, which is yeah. somewhat of a kind of a yeah. thought of it. At least I think of it as a kind of a barren wasteland, uh, rocky kind of place in the middle of <laughs> in the middle of the water but but i know that you you had talked a lot about sustainability and renewing renewable energy and um and recycling and all of that and i think that all kind of worked into what you were doing there is that is that kind of correct yeah um so i had the really amazing opportunity to do this residency on called appledore island which is one of the isle, isles of shoals in maine um, and yes, it's a group of islands that I think it's eight or eight or so miles out into the Atlantic, very isolated. But so Appledore Island is actually home to a marine lab that's run in conjunction with Cornell and the University of New Hampshire. Um, and it's marine science lab. So in the summer, they have all these uh, like huge classes of kids come and they're all studying marine science as a uh, kind of extracurricular, I guess, you know, because they're actually in between school um and they established an artist residence program because they recognize the importance of uh importing the arts into the science and what they're doing there and i think that's like so important and also revolutionary it's pretty lacking in a lot of sciences yeah that's really cool and yeah no i'm really i was really excited to be picked and i got to spend uh two weeks 
out on this island, not only making my art, but also talking with the kids. And we did a couple of workshops, which uh, were all really fun because they are very science oriented and they, they thought it was a lot of fun to actually bring some art into what they were doing. Um, I did all sorts of, of work from, from drawing to design ideas to little installations on the island. Sure. Um, I had a lot of fun because it was just a very free form. So I could wander the island, which has a lot of history itself. Uh, and was also an artist colony at one point, which was really It awesome. seems like a lot of your work, though, uh, from the way it sounds, is it, you have a very playful approach when you're writing, uh, when you're uh, drawing or illustrating. And, and that at some point, that playfulness then focuses into, like, the, if you will, the, the point of the pen, the minutia, to kind of make it real. Uh, are you a playful guy? Like, yeah. do you? Uh... Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, well, thanks for noticing a detail like like that. Um, yeah, I don't I don't take myself too seriously in some in some regards, and of course, in other ways, I do because I come off as talking about serious topics at times. And yeah, but a, a fish with legs and a surfboard. That's yeah, that's a pretty silly thing, <laughs> but it also should exist in the world. So I think you know. <laughs> In, in between this world of like complete seriousness and, you know, which we're all living through right now, like if you don't have elements of play and fun, then what's the point in all of this? So. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and um, actually uh, there, there's a writer, Stephen Johnson, who writes about innovation. And uh, one of his more recent books is called Wonderland. And he actually, his thesis throughout the book is that it's our, insatiable appetite for play that actually has invented the modern world mm -hmm. uh, going back centuries and, and how something as simple as, and, and I'm going to screw this up a little bit, but something as simple as um, dice, when dice became uniform, which is I think around the 13th or 14th century, um, it, it allowed games to be more honest, but it also kind of opened up statistical science. And so a lot of the statistical science that we now take for granted in the modern world really starts because somebody actually wanted to uh, play a, a game with dice, you know, uh, that we're honest, you know. Cool. That's wow. Yeah. So order comes from, from play. Yeah. In a oh, definitely. Part of the world design that we were talking uh -huh. about. That's amazing. Yeah. And, and, and then on the other side, though, uh, with that play and with that order, well, I, I do think that we all live in our boxes. And, and to go back to what you, what you were talking about and where you put a lot of your energy, um, it does feel like we're at this inflection point uh, that may last a century or two uh, of, of whether or not this planet is going to be sustainable, whether or not there are going to be more mass extinctions. Um, and there will be new life forms uh, that may or may not include us. And so uh, it's, it's fun to play. And, and yet uh, at some point you gotta like uh, focus in on the, the stuff that allows things to be sustainable. Well, I think that Scott, mm -hmm. Scott Bludorn definitely does that. And I wanna bring this right up to your bonic blind because it seems like that, the, the, which is an installation, it was on Akabonic Harbor. Um, it was, you could go into it, right? I mean, it was sort of like a little, uh, is a little room. It's now at the parish. Can you tell us about the inspiration of that? And, and really, not just the inspiration, what were you trying, what, what's, what's the message with that? Um, yeah, the Bonic Blind is uh, a project that kind of in, it included a lot of different things I wanted to do for a long time, which was A, building a small house and B, making it float. And then C, creating an art form idea around it and, and then even it opened up d e and f like creating a design for sustainable housing and uh off-grid and even creating a narrative it was also something that honored honored the area as well yeah right so in general it, it isn't like kind of honoring the the traditional bonnet culture of uh fishing farming hunting being close to the land Bonnikers, of course, are the people who lived around Akabonic Harbor in northern area of East Hampton Springs. And a lot of them descended, well, all of them descended from some of the first uh, European settling families. But I would also say that a Bonniker is definitely, the, of course, the native people who lived there, too, who were subsequently pushed out in, in some ways and some others. Um, but it really, it's... So again, it, yeah, it honors the people, but also the place itself, because the harbor is like this lifeblood for that community. And obviously, it's the natural world. It's a beautiful 
amazing harbor. And so the monoc line itself is actually takes the form of a duck blind, which a lot of people have seen. It's this camouflaged kind of small hut that's covered in grasses. So for when you're shooting ducks. And I always saw them and thought it'd be so cool to actually build that out into a tiny home and make it float. And did you actually build it or did you have people do it for you? <laughs> oh, I built the entire thing from the ground up. And I'm not a builder. You know what it reminded so, me of? And you'll know because yeah. we both have a, a mutual love of Nova Scotia. It reminded me of Maude Lewis's little place that's in. Yeah. Oh, wow. Cool. I'm glad you made that connection. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, yeah. Maude Lewis was a, is that her name? Yeah. Maude Lewis was an yeah. artist sock who lived in uh, Nova Scotia and her house was like 10 by 12. I mean, tiny. And she was like this tiny arthritic woman who painted every square inch of the inside of her house. Mm -hmm. And after her death, the entire house was moved into a museum. So you can mm -hmm. go into it, but it's like a house in it. Like, yo dog, I hear you like houses. So we put a house right. in your house. And Sonic <laughs> Blind is now residing at the parish art museum for people who want to yeah, yeah. so it was uh yeah it was actually <laughs> on floating on the harbor for a good month well so it, it, it includes all these different elements including i designed wallpaper that is inside the blind that is a combination of a lot of different drawings that all relate to the area and bonnet culture um i had a lot of fun building this thing i mean it's built it's built out of some reused materials like i found a, a geodesic dome playset that someone had just thrown on the side of the road to get rid of it. And I was like, this would make a really cool window. <laughs> so that became the centerpiece. And yeah, you could walk inside it. There's a small wood-burning stove, there's solar panels, uh, a bed. Um, and then there's like a trap door on the floor that you could actually, like conceptually, you could actually fish or you could clam or whatever from your own, from the bed. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. a lot of fun just building it. And like, not only is it functional, but, but it seems like going back to your, your uh, preschool or kindergarten cars, you're still kind of yeah. on the floating tip. Yeah, I, I think that is definitely a theme somewhere of, yeah. And, and that's what water does, which makes it also so magical is like gravity doesn't really apply so much. Whether you're flying or you're floating, it's another, it's like otherworldly feeling. And you did all of this during this pandemic. This was unveiled and everything during, during you know, recent months. So we're coming toward the end of the program. You know, what what are you planning in the coming months? What or how is your vision? Well, I have plenty of plenty of ideas that have been on the back burner for a long time, which I flesh out here and there, which includes I, I curate shows a lot. So putting together shows is one thing I'm doing. Uh, I've been making a lot of my own work, which also will relate mostly to environmental themes. Um, I'm even planning what I'd like to do is actually create a, uh, I've been really into, into soil and rebuilding soil. If you've seen the movie, um, kiss the ground. Oh, you got, you have to see this movie. I mean, uh, I mean, there's so many issues that we need to pay attention to, but soil health is really could be number one or at very least number two is we have to rebuild soils and regenerative agriculture is, uh, going to alleviate many problems from, from climate, of climate change, but it, it, it requires drawing down carbon. So I've been very interested in regenerative agriculture and composting and fertilizing and kelp. So kelp farming is just on the cusp of becoming an industry here. I think it's just a matter of time before it becomes a permitted use. And um, yeah, so seaweed, kelp is a seaweed. And, and mushrooms, like I'm into this whole natural world of natural allies that, and, and Bridget knows uh, that Mushrooms particularly are like this amazing natural ally. Fantastic Fungi, another movie everyone has to see. Here's my shout out. You got to watch Fantastic Fungi and uh, Kiss We had now. Dave Falkowski on a few weeks ago and we were talking about Fantastic yeah. Fungi because he introduced yeah. it at the uh, place in Huntington. And absolutely, yeah. I mean, between kelp and mushrooms, they basically hold the entire globe in this hug. Yeah, they do. And it's it's like this whole branch of science that hadn't really been looked at uh, in quite that way before. And again, yeah, we're on the cusp of all this amazing scientific breakthrough knowledge about the natural world. And all of our answers are kind of, they're out there. They're in the natural world if we embrace them and, you know, take a step back from all this technology that we think is going to be like our savior and realize that the natural world is has always been there and there's all these solutions in it. So... That's what I'm really interested in. Have you ever have you ever read uh, Ted Kaczynski's manifesto? No. 
It's really interesting. I mean, again, like he, he was crazy yeah. and I'm not endorsing him and I'm not like in any way saying like, but, but what, what's interesting is, is that like a lot of what he was trying to say in his own uh, kind of polluted brain was that post the industrialized revolution, humanity is on a course towards destruction. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I don't mean to in any way elevate him because the guy was a lunatic, yeah. but interesting. <laughs> yeah. An interesting well, lunatic, the best yep. time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. So how does this, how is this going to translate into your art, Scott? Uh, everything you're thinking and talking about. Yeah, um, I've been drawing a lot on found objects, which include the cast-offs of industrial society. I've been doing that for a number of years. Uh, uh, yeah, so that's like a lot of drawing on these objects, which is not only a different drawing surface, but it's a message about the medium itself that it's so prolific. Like you can't really walk on a beach without finding, well, tons of trash, honestly. But um, yeah, uh, climate change is, is still kind of my number one theme right now. And it, of course it involves all my flying and levitating themes. And so yeah, I'm drawing, I'm painting, and also all these other like kind of, oh, and design work. I mean, I've been making lamps out of kelp. Like that's kind of a fun thing that I've been doing. And that's cool. Yeah, it's very different, right? But like, who knew that kelp, you can eat it. You can also make lamps out of it. It's like very like translucent and green and alien and cool. <laughs> that is so neat. And I love yeah, that. growing mushrooms. Yeah, gardening. Too many ideas to list here, but. <laughs> well, Scott, you, you just, you know, we could talk to you for hours. You have so much going on. The fact that you're so young and you're so involved and, uh, it's it's so great and and an incredibly talented artist along with it. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on, Scott Blue Dorn, and people can look at all your your many incarnations of different art, whether it's the the furniture, the recyclables, the painting, or the drawing at scottbluedorn.com. Thank you. And uh, Alec, do you have anything you want to add? Or well, yeah, you know, Scott, thank you so much for coming on and, uh, you know, offering us uh, some of your wisdom and, and a, a little, like, look into your process and everything. Um, I think, you know, what, one of my big takeaways from this conversation is, uh, is that we, we, we need to be playful, but we also need to be present. Um, you know, we are also uh, at a, a moment where I think uh, honesty and truth and facts and science are, are gonna take the front stage again, mercifully. And, and with that, uh, before we can have a proper reckoning, we're gonna need to uh, just acknowledge what that even means. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, it's almost February. Again, my birthday, Eric's birthday is February 2nd, right? So uh, we got uh, birthdays coming up this week, um, but I hope everybody's enjoying the winter. I hope everybody's wearing their masks uh, and uh, staying safe. And, and staying very appreciative of, of what you have uh, while also uh, not falling into any lethargy of, of what may still be lost. Uh, so thank you all, uh, be well and stay well. It's a good day to save the world.